Welcome to Explanation of Benefits, a patient podcast. Join J.R. Clark and Dr. J. Moore as they explore the complex intersection of healthcare and insurance. Whether you're not sure about the difference between a premium and a deductible, or looking for expert insights on the future of employee benefits, everyone can use an explanation of benefits. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. J. and J.R. Hi there, and welcome to the Explanation of Benefits podcast from Patient. I am your host, Jay Moore, and I'm here today, as usual, with J.R. Clark. J.R., how you doing? Doing great, Jay. <laughs> you know, this is a fun day for us because we're actually doing this in person today. We are sitting in a room in our office in Columbia, Missouri, and our uh, very fantastic producers, Morgan and Ryan, are right here, um, sitting right next to us, having to be silent because we don't have a soundproof room, but it's fun to be in the same room together and be able to talk a little bit about some of these topics and have, I guess, what amounts to a live studio audience. Have you ever recorded anything in front of a live studio audience before? No, this is a first. This is a first for probably, at least for our podcast. Jay, are you about to lead in with a story about when you've recorded in front of a live I've studio audience? I've never recorded audience. in front of a live studio audience. Oh, wow. I know. It's, it's a, special. It's a first for us. It's a first for patients. First for the podcast. It's first all around. Yeah. We- so... We need to actually those little lights that say, you know, applause or laugh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or for sure one that says recording. So the people in the office <laughs> right outside our glass door here don't just burst in and start asking us questions as they do. Yes. Typically each day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was going to start off today with a little joke that I heard that I thought you might enjoy. Oh, I can't wait. We get into this. I can't wait. It's a joke that I heard at a conference that I was just at. So I wish I could remember who said it, but I can't. So um, someone out there who probably is not listening to this podcast. But if you are and you hear me tell your joke, I apologize that I'm stealing your joke. But here it goes. Are you ready? This is a joke that only healthcare people will really get. So if you're not a healthcare person, prepare to just be confused. Okay, so knock, knock. Who's there? HIPAA. HIPAA who? That's all I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's my joke. You know, we should really close this episode on that alone. I mean, yeah. I mean, that probably is going to get us hundreds of listeners just because people will be like, it's so funny. It's the funniest podcast I've heard. Yes, absolutely. All right. So today we're going to jump into this. We're going to talk about um, ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and how that has changed healthcare and what life was like for insurance companies before ACA and what it's like now that we have that we have ACA and it's the law of the land. Um, You know, we're going to start off by just talking about some of the general provisions that ACA put into place. And then if we have time, we're going to get a little bit into the marketplace. Many people, I think, equate ACA with marketplace, you know, the exchanges, the marketplace, Obamacare, whatever it is that you want to call it. But the insurance that you can buy if you are individually insured and you go onto your computer and you log into healthcare.gov and pick out some insurance. That's what people equate with ACA. But there's more to it than that, more to it than just the exchanges. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So why don't we get into that a little bit and start talking? And I think that when I think about the ACA and really how it changed insurance, there are three things that I think it fundamentally changed about how health insurance works. And those three things are some rules around something called the MLR, this idea of guaranteed issue, and Finally, the idea that we're no longer going to have medical underwriting. And if you're an insurance person, all of those make sense to you. But if you're not, then probably those terms don't mean anything. So we're going to get into that a little bit and discuss what those mean and and why it's all important. 
so does that sound reasonable to you? It sounds great. Okay. I'm glad we, we do talk about these things before we have these podcasts. And so if you surprised me at this point with like, no, I'm not okay with that. I'd be like, what? Because you were 15 minutes ago. Yes. Dear listeners, it's true. We only talk about these about 15 minutes before we start. So that's uh, one of our little secrets. So anyway, um, so let's start with uh, MLR. So MLR is an acronym and it stands for medical loss ratio. Right. And JR, I want you to explain to our listeners what an MLR is and why it's important. So the simplest form of a medical loss ratio is you think about, you know, a health insurance company pays out medical claims when people go to their doctor or the hospital or get you know their pharmacy prescription filled. And so what the medical loss ratio represents is those claims as the numerator uh-huh. divided by the premium that a consumer pays for the health insurance product. So that's the denominator. So, okay. if, you, so if you think of it in terms of if we say an MLR of 80%, that means that 80% of the premium dollars that are collected are paid out in actual claims for the member. Okay, so let's let's get into that a little bit more just to make sure people understand. So let's say that I'm buying my insurance and the healthcare premium, the amount that I have to pay is $100. We know that there's no premium out there that's $100, but we're going to keep it simple. If I have claims and I go see a doctor and the doctor charges me $20 and then I have some lab work and that's another $20, and then I have an x-ray and that's another $20. I spent $60 total in claims. And so what you're saying then is that the MLR in this case would be 60%. You got it. Okay. Where does the other 40% go? So the other 40% is usually spent on a handful of items. First being commissions for any brokers that are involved in, in selling the business. Uh-huh. Administrative expenses for actually conducting the business. So within administrative expenses, think of it as the employees at the health insurance company, the office space, or even the cost to actually negotiate contracts with hospital systems. All right. Um, And then the third big component of it really is the profit that's left over at the end of the day. Okay. So when we talk about profits from insurance companies, we're talking about the piece of the non-claims expense that's left over after they've paid all of their bills and expenses. Correct. All right. So in the past, prior to ACA, MLR was a number that was tracked because insurance companies wanted to know how they were doing in terms of the amount that was getting paid out in claims compared to the amount that they were collecting in premiums. So a lower number would be better for the insurance company because it means that they have more money left over to run the business and to use as profits. A higher number would be worse. If the MLR was, let's say it was 110%, what would that mean? So that would mean that the insurance company was losing a lot of money, keeping it simple, because effectively that meant they were paying out more in claims than they were taking in in premium. And then they still had to pay their administrative expenses and their commissions and all those other things out on top of that. Okay. So another way that some finance people might look at this is that that portion, that's the MLR. Another way of looking, looking at it is that that's the cost of goods sold. Is that right? Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Okay. So if I were a retailer and I were purchasing widgets and I had to buy those widgets for $10 and then I sold them for 15, my cost of goods sold would be 10. The money that I would be making in my profit is five, but I have to use that five to run my business. So I have to pay rent on my widget store. I have to pay my widget cashier. I have to buy health insurance for my widget employees and so forth. Is that right? Is that right? Right. So in that case, you would look at it and say you're, you know, if it were your widget loss ratio would Uh be 67%. Okay, cool. 
Um, what happens if the MLR is 100%, just to make sure that I understand this concept? Well, in that case, it would mean that your widget was costing you, you were paying $15 for your widget, and then you're turning around and selling that widget for $15. Okay, so I'm, I'm making $0 on the sale of the thing. Correct. Prior to the ACA, what was the experience of insurance companies? Like, what would a good MLR be? What would be considered something reasonable? It would have to... They, people have to know that some of the money that's coming in for premium is getting paid out in claims, but clearly insurance companies have a goal. So prior to ACA, what do you think a good goal for an insurance company might be? So on a normal insurance type of business, you probably would see somewhere in the mid 70%, maybe pushing, you know, 80 in some cases for larger employers, you know, more in well, more well into the 80%. Okay. So what changed with the ACA? So under the Affordable Care Act, when it came into play, for all fully insured business, um, if you were selling small employer business or individual business, the health insurer had to be running at an MLR of 80% or higher. As a large employer, under, under um, the Affordable Care Act for fully insured, it had to be 85% MLR. Okay. So the MLR would have to be 80%. So that means that for every $100 I take in in premiums, I have to be spending at least 80 on claims. Correct. What if I undershoot it? What if I come in and my MLR at the end of the year is 75%? Then under the law, then there had to be a rebate or a refund back to the employer groups or the individuals who had paid premium. And it was, I guess it's worth noting too in this, you know, we're, we're talking about this like almost like a single example, but this is actually all aggregated over a, a bigger block. So if I'm a health insurer and I sell to 5,000 different employers that are all small, you know, small employers, all of that business is aggregated and the average claims that Got we'd it. have to pay would have to be you know, 80% or higher. So that's a really good point. So if I, as an individual consumer, paid $100 for my premium, the rule is not that $80 has to be spent on medical claims for me or else I get some of that money back. What it's saying is that if you and I and Ryan and Morgan and everybody else in the room bought insurance, that overall, the $400 that we put in, 80% of that $400 would have to be paid out in claims, which means maybe you spent all of it and the rest of us spent none. Right. But we're taking the total amount in premium and then the total amount paid out in claims and that has to be 80% or else there's a rebate that goes back to people who are paying that in. Correct. Okay. How often do these rebates actually occur? You know, they actually, they occurred a fair amount, like I think more than you would expect. And the reason that's the case is because there's actually getting a little complicated here, but there's actually a three-year averaging component to this. And so you might have one year where, you know, let's let's take the COVID year, where in 2020, there were a lot of folks who didn't go get medical care during the course of that year, just because of the kind of fear of exposure in the hospital and, and mm -hmm. so on. So the claims for health insurers in that year dropped a lot. And so, you know, in that case, there's you know, there would be a, a more of a propensity to be below that 80% threshold. All right. But that gets averaged over the course of three years. So maybe you're only paying out one third of it of that difference. So we make it a little more simple. Let's say in that year, it was 74% loss ratio. So you had a 6% gap. It's divided over three years. So you're basically going to be paying out a rebate equivalent to one third of that or 2%. Okay. And so sometimes people actually, when they have an insurance plan, they'll get a check from the insurance company that says, hey, this is your rebate check. Here's your, your $50 or whatever it might be, because we took in more premiums than we paid out in claims. And so everybody gets a little bit of money back to right. try to keep that that number rational. Right. And I should add in, by the way, you asked directly, you know, how often do we see it? You see it more in employer group business than you do in individual business. 
quite often individual business runs at a higher loss ratio for individual and families than it would for an employer group business. Okay. So this is interesting because, you know, and I think we've touched on this before, but this idea of MLR means that it's impossible for an insurance company to say, we'd like for our profits to be higher. So let's just double our premiums and then continue to pay out the same claims. Because if they did that, then the MLR would not be met and they'd have to write big rebate checks. And so there's no reason to do that um, right. in the market. And of course, if they're just saying, well, I'm going to hedge my bets, I'm going to charge as much as I can. The problem with that is there are other companies out there who are also charging premiums and you have to be competitive. And so everybody wants to produce a, a good price, which is low enough that people will want to buy it. And so there's no incentive necessarily to push those prices up as high as possible. Um, although I, I, I mean, I'm not naive. Like I think that there are some games that people play um, to try to manipulate these numbers in certain ways. But for the most part, that's the theory of it. That's how it's supposed to work, how the MLR works. Right. And I think what's you know, something that's a kind of a side piece to that is that market competitiveness existed even before the Affordable Care Act came into play. And that's why you didn't see loss ratios that were 40% or 50% prior to the Affordable Care Act passing that all of a sudden spiked to 80%. Right, right. That's why the range was still pretty tight because the market competitiveness in both cases, like, for example, you might have a Blue Cross carrier that's pricing at a 79% loss ratio. Well, if United comes in and prices at, you know, anything substantially different, like an 82%, well, then Blue Cross is exactly. Yeah, it's no different than if I have my widget store and widgets cost generally $10 to buy and I start charging 20, people are going to go down the street and buy their widgets someplace else. You got it. I could not just say, I think I'll charge more and just make more money. It doesn't really work like that. That's the market, right? Right. Okay, so that's loss ratio. I feel like we've spent enough time there. So the second concept is the concept of guaranteed issue. And that is, uh, you know, that, that's got some nuance to it, but let's just start there. So guaranteed issue. What, what do we mean when we say that it, under ACA, insurance products have to be guaranteed issue? Well, so basically it means that anybody who applies and wants coverage gets coverage regardless of their health status. And so... I'm going to talk a little bit about like prior to ACA versus post ACA. Mm -hmm. So if you think about individual coverage is a good thing, a good thing that I think a lot of folks can relate to on this one, you know, prior to the affordable care act, if I was an individual who had a health condition that was substantial and I wanted to go get coverage at a health insurer, the health insurer would either a say, Hey, you've got to pay a whole lot more in your premium because you're sicker than average or B we're not going to cover you at all. Right. They could just flat out pass. Exactly. No. Yeah. And so under the Affordable Care Act, when guaranteed, guaranteed issue passed for it, effectively, it meant that, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm healthy or sick, I'm going to get coverage and I'm going to pay if me as a sick person comes and applies, I'm going to pay the same amount as a healthy person. So we'll talk about pricing and payment in just a second. When we talk about underwriting. So let's just talk about some of the implications about that guaranteed issue right now. I think that the way a lot of people understand this is a provision in the ACA, which is very popular in America, uh, which is the no pre-existing condition clause. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially another way that that's one of the consequences of guaranteed issue. What that means is that if I have a health condition, let's say I have uh, diabetes and I go to buy insurance, the insurer can't look at that and say, well, you know, we don't cover diabetics because we know diabetics are going to be more expensive and the old rule that I always used to hear was that uh, you don't you don't write insurance on a house that's on fire, because obviously if the house is burning down right in front of your eyes, you know you're going to have to replace that house, and so you're not going to sell somebody an insurance product on it. 
And not to compare somebody that has a chronic condition with, you know, something being on fire, but it's the same concept that if you know that someone is sick and they have a lot of health expense and it's ongoing right now, then you would think, well, maybe I don't want to write this insurance product to that person. And so this was a pre-existing clause deal. And I think prior to ACA, that was pretty common, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, certainly. And the reason I use individual as the example is I think a lot of individuals and families saw that happen more often than, say, a group business. Right. Because in a group business, you're selling to 100 people at once. Right. So in that case, you might say, well, there's one person who's sick there, but there are 99 who aren't. And I think that I can kind of smooth that out across that entire group. But when you're talking about strictly just that one person and you're saying, here's one person that's going to get insurance, then it's very easy to... um, you know, to, to say no to that person if you don't do guaranteed issue. So that's a big deal. Right. Um, okay. So uh, let's move on to the third element of ACA and that is medical underwriting. So JR, first of all, why don't you tell me um, what does it mean to be underwritten? What does underwriting really mean in the health insurance context? So in the health insurance context, effectively what it means is that there is somebody that looks at the sicknesses or the health of somebody who's applying for coverage and says, you know what, I think that, you know, based upon this level of conditions that a person has, they're going to cost us X amount. And by virtue of that, you know, we were, we're going to charge a higher premium because of it. Right. And so, or, you know, likewise, this person is very healthy and because we're not going to spend hardly anything on them, we're going to charge a lower premium because uh-huh. of it. Okay. So this is almost um, kind of another way of looking at that guarantee issue question. You alluded to it earlier that a person could look at someone and say, okay, well, I have to write insurance for you because of guaranteed issue. But you know what? Instead of $500, which is what I'd normally charge, I'm going to charge you $1,000. Right. So yeah, you can get it, but it's going to be $1,000 or $5,000 or so much that I know you're going to say no. So what we're saying with medical underwriting is that in the ACA world today, you cannot do medical underwriting, which means you cannot vary the price for an individual based on the conditions that they have. You, you set one price across the board to begin with, and then you put that price out there and then anyone who wants it can come in and buy it at that price. Right. And, and for clarification, when we say the ACA side of things, this really is a provision for individual and family coverage and also small employer coverage. So large employers don't, you know, they can still be underwritten. Um, you know, so when I say large employers, I mean, in some states, it's 51 or more employees. In other states, it's 100 or more employees. Right, right. Um, I think 50 is common yes, across is. most states. I think a few have 100. So, um, okay, the, uh, the, the, the lack of medical underwriting then means that I cannot vary my cost depending on what conditions a person has. But there are some exceptions. I am allowed to vary my cost based on a few factors, right? Right. There are a few factors. So like a a 25-year-old healthy man and a 65-year-old not so healthy man might have different prices. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And just just for clarification on that, so a 25-year-old healthy man and a 25-year-old unhealthy man are going to pay the same rate. Yes. But because of the age thing that you were just alluding to, there can be a variation in premium. So what are the differences that an insurance company can use to make differences in price? So for the Affordable Care Act market, you can change price based upon, obviously, the plan a person selects. So right. the richer plan, the more costly it is. And by richer, you mean lower co-pays, lower deductibles, Bingo. and so forth. Yeah. yeah, thanks for that clarification. Sure. Um, and then also, you can vary the plan by age, but not gender. 
Um, you can also vary the, sorry, you can vary the price. I think I said very plan, but yeah, price, price, yeah. vary the price. Got yeah. it. You can vary the, the price also by whether or not a person uses tobacco. Okay. And then the last factor that you can vary by is the rating region that they live within. So for example, it might be more costly, you know, out in a rural area because there's only one hospital servicing people and that one hospital doesn't negotiate rates as well. Got it. So when a health plan comes out, what they say is we're going to create the product. We're going to write a deductible and a copay and a premium and all, and then we're going to set a premium and then we're going to make some bands. So we're going to say a 25 year old pays this much, a 35 year old pays this much, a 75 year old pays that much. Are there any rules on the maximum? So could I charge, you know, a hundred dollars for a 25 year old and $200 for a 35 year old. But then I say, Oh, by 45 people are starting to not get so healthy. So I think I'll charge a thousand for a 45 year old and I'll charge 10,000 for a 55 year old. Is that allowed? No. So the federal government actually initially gave a table for ages. So, you know, effectively just Think of it this way. At age 21, you might be at a 1.0 factor. Okay. Whereas at age 65, you might be at a 3.0 factor. So there's a three three to one range there. Uh Um, There have been some changes that happen on a state-based. I think there are different laws within different states that allow uh, states to be able to kind of appeal to the government to say, Uh hey, we want to change this a little bit. And so some have been successful at that. Okay. Okay, so there's a lot of nuance, and clearly, um, probably nobody who didn't know this beforehand is ready to go out and be a pricing actuary for an ACA plan after this little conversation. But hopefully, this provides a little bit of background on how ACA has changed the game for insurance companies, and it truly has. So, again, just to review, the three major things that the ACA changed in terms of insurance are first of all, some rules around the, uh, the approved or allowed loss ratios. Uh, second, the idea of guaranteed issue. And third, the idea of no medical underwriting. And those are big changes for insurance companies. And I think we'll probably wrap up there and then continue to talk about this on our next episode and talk about how what implications that had. Because JR, you were at a big insurance company when these changes came into effect. So you really got to see what happened when we went from the world prior to ACA to after ACA. So maybe we'll get into that a little bit. And then we also might touch on the exchanges and actually how those work and how people pick plans and and so forth. So hopefully that gives everybody a little bit of background information on the Affordable Care Act and how that has changed insurance over time. And that's been interesting to you. We want to thank everybody for being on today and listening with us. JR, I will catch you next time. I'm not sure if we'll be face-to-face in person again, but I hope so because this is pretty fun. I felt like... uh, We had a little bit different energy in person than we do when we're over a Zoom on a computer. Agreed completely. All right. Well, thanks as always to Ryan and Morgan for being our excellent producers. And also special shout out to Kenzie, who's doing some photography and video that we're going to put up on our website later on. So thank you all for being on the uh, podcast and for helping us out. We will see you next time on the explanation of benefits from patients.